the Water Values Podcast, Session 41. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGinnis. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As Joey said, I'm Dave McGimsey. Thanks for joining me. And thank you for helping spread the word about the Water Values Podcast by word of mouth, by social media, and your company newsletters and things like that. Your efforts are greatly appreciated. Today, we're going to talk permaculture and rainwater harvesting with Brad Lancaster. A listener in Michigan actually suggested that we speak with Brad. It's great to have another listener-suggested topic, by the way. And we have another listener-suggested topic for you next week, too. In any event, Brad is a guru in this area and will describe some very interesting methods for you to, as he and his mentor call it, plant the rain. It's an area of water that I really didn't know that much about, but Brad really brings it to life, and I think you'll find him and his work absolutely fascinating. With that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Brad, thanks very much for coming on to the Water Values Podcast. Greatly appreciate your time. To start off, could you please tell us a little about how you got interested in water and what your background is? Sure. Um, So uh, I actually didn't study uh, water-related issues um, in college and whatnot, Um, but my interest in water uh, started um, just by growing up in the dry land environment of Tucson, Arizona. And uh, just seeing how our water situation seemed to get worse over time. Um, I found college enabled me to uh, articulate problems pretty well. Um, But it wasn't until after college that I started to tap into strategies that helped me find solutions. And one of those for me was a course in permaculture. It's a methodology of sustainable integrated design. It helped me make the connections and uh, an aspect of the course was rainwater harvesting. And uh, I quickly learned that more rain falls on my dry land community than the entire community's population consumes of municipal water in a year. And this kind of woke me up to the potential of utilizing our free local waters, such as the rain. Uh, And I just started to research it more on my own, practice it, seek out others doing the work, and it just grew from there. Okay. Uh, Can you tell me a little about, you know, where did you go to find the resources? How did you kind of get involved in this uh, permaculture and rainwater harvesting niche area? Yep. So uh, I was seeking out um, other practitioners, um, both uh, domestically, um, who I often found through the permaculture community, but I um, also sought out people internationally, and I would go to the international uh, rainwater harvesting conferences, and uh, also the the American ones, but the international ones I found were much more valuable for me, because um, people were typically uh, doing far more with what seemed like far less, and what I mean by that is uh, internationally, people typically didn't have as much money um, or uh, financial resources to tap, so they had to leverage their creativity. And this really uh, um, came to be the case when I traveled to southern Africa and visited a uh, subsistence farmer, Mr. Zephaniah Piri Maseko. And this guy, he had over a 30-year period 
turned a, a wasteland that was overgrazed, overcut, denuded into a relative oasis. And uh, all by simply planting the rain, as he would call it. And um, the you go there now, and it's this oasis that uh, it's just a, a multi-level forest of <laughs> um, food-producing plants and whatnot, water seeping out of the ground. Uh, it's just phenomenal. And uh, what really sparked me with uh, my interaction with him is uh, um, he had these limitations. You know, he, he couldn't dig a deep well. It, it was not financially or physically possible. Um, he could not divert waters from uh, rivers and so on because they didn't exist. Um, so he really had to make the most of the rain and what he had on site. And uh, so I really took that to heart. And a lot of what I do in my work now is I try and self-impose uh, similar constraints in a way that these constraints become leverage bars. So it's so easy in the United States to just turn on the tap and use the water from wherever it comes from. In, in Tucson, it comes from the Colorado River 300 miles away. Um, but if, if I, instead of just doing the so-called easy path and say, hey, how can I make the most of the rain that falls on my site? How can I make the most of the water going down my drains, reuse it before it leaves? Um, that way, I force myself into the creativity that Mr. Peary and many of these others I've experienced in my international travels uh, garnered because of their situation. And as a result, I've been able to figure out how to harvest about 100,000 gallons of rain a year on an eighth of an acre urban lot where we just get 11 inches of rain falling from the sky. And uh, I'm able to grow an abundant landscape just on rainwater and recycled household gray water, as opposed to being reliant completely on drinking water, which is the typical scenario in the Western US, where 30 to 70% of the drinking water a household consumes is used to irrigate the landscape. So I've just cut that out of the scenario. I've seen, so if we could do this as a society, we can reduce our drinking water consumption by 30 to 70% simply by using what we already have free of charge on site. I mean, that's absolutely amazing. Um, so tell me, how, how do you kind of get into, the, into these kind of dry land strategies? What what are they, and can you talk a little about uh, about the methods you use to harvest the rain? Yep. So, uh, again, the African water farmer, Mr. Peary, he's been my greatest inspiration. So I take his, uh, his rule to heart of the first step is we plant the rain um, because the soil is our largest and least expensive tank. It's already here on site. So... Um, I do harvest water in tanks, but I start with the soil. So, and that's where I collect the majority of the water. So I simply change the surface of the soil. So instead of being hill-like in form, so a hill-like form would drain water out of the system, I instead create bowl-like forms. So I collect that water. I then turn that bowl into a sponge 
by planting a lot of living pumps in the form of vegetation, and I cover the surface of the soil in organic matter, the, the leaf drop prunings that I already have on site. So it rapidly absorbs the water and much more slowly releases it or loses it to evaporation. Um, so this way, uh, when it rains, my landscape absorbs every drop of the rainfall, including runoff from neighbors' roofs and the surrounding street. By maximizing what I catch and absorb, I dramatically reduce my need for a manufactured or purchased tank because um, I'm banking so much in the soil, I don't need to bank so much in the tank, and this dramatically reduces costs. The other great thing about these earthworks, these rain gardens, these bowl-like shapes that harvest passively harvest the rain, they work whether I'm home or not. Um, they always work. They're not dependent on anyone turning a lever or turning on a pump. Um, they, they work all the time as they're based on natural systems and the simple gravity-fed distribution of the water. Um, so the main, my main strategy is I plant that rain. And then these earthworks, these rain gardens, these bowl-like shapes that harvest the rain, the great thing is they harvest any and all waters. So I can direct the gray water from my household drains with a pipe having a 2% slope to these same rain gardens, these same earthworks. So in times of no rain, I can I turn these rain gardens into gray water gardens. Um, and the great thing about gray water, gray water being the water from our household sink, bathtub, shower, and washing machine drains, is its perennial flow as long as I'm home. So uh, even in the dry times, I can freely irrigate my fruit trees with this previously considered wastewater, which I've converted into a resource water. Mm -hmm. um, and I can also send uh, air conditioning condensate into these same earthworks, uh, evaporative cooler bleed off. Um, it's great. It can take all the waters. Whereas in a tank, um, oh, and I can also, sorry, I can also send street runoff into these basins. I would not want to store gray water or street runoff in a tank because of all the organic matter and with the street runoff, the pollutants coming off the street, I don't want to store that in the tank. Whereas uh, in the soil, no problem, because much of the soil life actually helps transform and filter those toxins, such as the, um, the oils coming off the street or the soaps uh, coming out of the gray water. Um, they transform it uh, into a, a benign form and in sometimes a beneficial form. Uh, uh, there's a lot of actually nitrates coming off streets that the plants can convert into a readily accessible form for the plants and thus fertilizer. So um, by working with these living systems in the soil, not only am I able to capture the water, but these living systems are able to passively and freely filter um, some of the bad things coming into the system and transform those into resources. Okay, well, I mean, that sounds really interesting. Now, I've I've got a bunch of questions, <laughs> um, and I, I'm going to have to uh, list them off here so I don't forget them all. So, first off, health issues about gray water and just putting that on your yard. I mean, are there are there issues about you know health if you touch the touch the area that's being irrigated with the gray water? Are you going to get sick? 
Okay. Um, there have been no documented cases of anyone having any health-related issues with gray water. Um, and uh, so I find it very safe. Um, now, again, I want to clarify, gray water is not black water. Black water would be the water coming from the toilet. And uh, some states consider kitchen sink water also to be black water because of the higher uh, amount of organic matter in it and food for bacteria like salmonella or E. coli. But gray water, uh, very safe. Um, and uh, if you just think about it, you don't get sick in the shower, right? And, uh, <laughs> you're basically, as you shower, you're generating gray water. So, and you're fine. Okay, so um, we just send that to the plants, and I recommend people primarily use that gray water for perennial plants, like trees and shrubs. And that way, if there's any risk, like let's say, um, sorry to be a little graphic, but let's say someone accidentally um, craps their pants, okay? Yeah. <laughs> they need to clean up. So they, they wash their pants in the washing machine, and they, uh, they wash themselves in the shower. Um, as long as that water's going uh, very quickly being absorbed by the soil and we're irrigating perennial plants, there's no risk because what goes down the drain and is absorbed by the soil does not come into direct contact with the part of the plant you're eating, okay? Okay. So a general rule is for gray water, send it to perennial plants or annual plants like a tomato on a trellis where the tomato doesn't touch the gray water, but the roots get the water. And then you're totally fine. And one other thing I'll th say about health, I find people that harvest uh, their gray water, their health improves because you have to be careful what soaps you use. If you use um, soaps high in salt or sodium or chlorinated bleach, uh, that soap, that cleanser, that bleach can kill your soils and plants. And uh, too much exposure to these same things that are harmful to the soil and the plants are harmful to us. So as people change the product or detergent they use so it's healthier for their soil, they find it becomes healthier for their skin and bodies as well. Okay. Do you have some examples of, of types of products that, that would be safe to, you know, let's say, let's just say um, these products that will be healthier for you what are what are some examples of those yep so uh the the, the first step is um you want to you, you can't really trust um the product labels or brands uh you really need to look at the ingredients of of all the products and i've got a lot more detail on the gray water harvesting page of my website which is harvestingrainwater.com but real quickly uh, avoid powder soaps and detergents. They tend to be much higher in soap and salt. Uh, liquid soaps are much better. Um, uh, don't use chlorinated bleach. Instead, use hydrogen peroxide bleach. That's okay. Um, and uh, look on the ingredients of your soaps, and if you see salt or sodium anything uh, or chlorine, don't get it. Um, so a lot of uh, soaps... Um, to uh, sodium lauryl sulfate and whatnot, uh, you don't want those ones. Um, but the basic rule is liquid soaps instead of bar or powdered detergents and use hydrogen peroxide bleach as opposed to chlorinated bleach. Uh, I'm going to go back to my kind of mental list of questions here. Uh, the other question I had going was 
what happens in the event of torrential rains uh, where, you know, have are your earthwork and rainwater harvesting systems, can they get overwhelmed by, uh, a, a, you know, a torrential rain? Uh, well, no, because um, I've got eight common sense uh, principles for any water harvesting system. And one of those is you've always got to have an overflow um, sized to handle a peak flow event and uh, set up in such a way that it turns that overflow into a resource. So as long as you've got an overflow route pre-planned, you're fine. So um, the, the earthwork can fill up with water, um, but uh, once full, it can overflow where it's not a problem. Now, I want to give you an example of this. Um, I've created about seven um, water harvesting rain gardens or basins along the street beside my house. And um, I designed these to handle the rainwater runoff uh, from the street. They, so the street irrigates the street side trees with the runoff I capture from the street. And the inlet point for each of these basins doubles as what you might call the outlet point. Um, we cut the street curb, so the, the cut in the curb um, becomes the inlet point. Water flows through that inlet, fills up the street side basin. Once it's full, the water in the basin backs up to the inlet point, so no more water comes in, and the surplus water goes down to the next basin. So these basins act like backwaters or, or eddies. And um, it's always worked great. And uh, this, past, this summer, I decided to push the, the system. So I decided to divert water from the other side of the street with a temporary uh, diversion berm I made out of some lumber and, and soil and sandbags. And uh, I increased the watershed area, the total area that drains water to my basins um, by 12 times um, because the other side of the street receives much more water than my side of the street um, because there's a big parking lot that dumps into it. And uh, anyhow, I basically turned a one and a half inch rain event into a 19 and a half inch rain event. Okay, that has never been recorded in recorded history. Um, to get that much rainfall uh, in Tucson. And yet everything was fine. I filled up all my basins, and uh, it was only in the last 20 minutes of the storm that the system finally started to overflow. And that overflow water was caught by my neighbor's street-side basins downstream. So no water was lost from the system. So that just showed me, you know, how incredibly resilient these systems are in wet times to be able to handle such a biblical uh, fabricated rain event, okay? Mm -hmm. And um, so that's in a wet time, but let me just talk about the dry time. So let's say that one and a half inch rain was the only rain we got all year round. We're set, okay? Because we maximize the capture and infiltration and storage of that water so now it can slowly be doled out from the soil via the plant's roots and whatnot long into the dry time. So we can shrink droughts, we can shrink dry seasons, um, and we can um, significantly uh, mitigate the peaks of the flood wet events. 
what is the adoption process like? I mean, how, how are you seeing people take this up and what strategies that they're, that they're using seem to work the best? Okay. I find these things take off when people can uh, regularly see a great working example. So our strategy has been create, you know, really great, effective examples, beautiful examples in the community and then um, talk it up to anyone who who asks. Um, and uh, uh, so this is how it started to spread in my neighborhood. Um, and then we went further <clears throat> when we uh, started these curb cuts. Um, to be honest, they were illegal at the time in my community. So we did we did our first curb cut. We tried to make the cut super clean so we'd be improving public property, not making it worse by sledgehammering stuff. And um, it worked so well that a lot of neighbors got excited. They wanted to do likewise. So we spoke to the city, started a, a long process, but it's since been legalized, and now it's incentivized. Um, you can actually get a rebate for doing this work, and the city now requires it in all new uh, city street construction or significant renovation. Okay, now, now time out real quick. Yeah, it, it was that a direct result of of your process? Uh, it was a direct result of my of our my process, but it wasn't that alone. Because um, at the same time, there were people within the transportation department, um, the landscape architect there, um, pushing for change and harvesting water, because he had found that. Um, he was able to significantly reduce the costs of the city's street-side landscaping if he harvested rainwater. Because as opposed to having to put in a drip irrigation system, he could instead just get a watering truck contract for the first year of the plant's establishment. And then from that point on, everything would be irrigated by rainwater. So this dramatically reduced his cost in irrigation installation, uh, maintenance of leaks and whatnot, and but more than anything, weeding, because he found plants regularly irrigated had much more weed issues, but those irrigated by rainwater had far fewer weeds. Huh. Uh, so there was stuff like that going on. There were um, other organizations advocating for this as well. And uh, and then I'd say my books were a real big part of it because um, public policy folks, citizens, Everyone was able to read up on what was this about, see how it could work, see real-life examples, and um, they could then understand it, um, and they could do this in the privacy of their own homes without being publicly challenged in a meeting. And so there was this big groundswell of um, people calling mayor and council and saying they want more of this. Uh, so this helped generate the political will around the movement as well, which was key. Yeah, well, that's that's very interesting. Now, did you um, do you have any insight into why irrigated uh, green space has more weeds than rainwater harvested irrigated green space has more weeds? Any? Um, yeah. So, when we're planting uh, the uh, perennial plants, and uh, I and the city has found that the most successful plantings are those that are. Uh, native to the area. Okay, so um, we're planting the the hardiest, um, most likely to succeed perennial plants, and um, they are perfectly adapted to our climates, um, uh, rain and dry season cycle, and our soils. 
So um, <clears throat> once they get established, they're fine. Even if we get a bad drought year or a real wet year, they, they respond accordingly. And they are able to outcompete the weeds. Whereas if we had regular irrigation, that then is more favorable to non-native vegetation and the uh, invasive weeds because they're getting water all the time, regularly. And we find in the dry season, our weeds die out, whereas the perennial plantings don't um, when we're just irrigating with harvested rainwater. Whereas when you're irrigating with the, you know, the imported irrigation water, well, you can pamper those weeds all year round. So it's a matter of working with the abilities of the plants that we want, um, which are already adapted to our, our local rain cycles and soils. Okay. And what about those plants? I mean, it, it sounds to me like wherever you're going to adopt this, perm, you know, this permaculture, you're going to, the, the plants you're using uh, are going to be different depending on the, the area of the country you're going to be in. Sure. So that's up to every community to uh, you know talk to their local plant nursery folks, or horticulturalists, and whatnot, and um, create lists, plant lists that are best adapted for their area. So in the back of my books and on the plant list section of my website, I've um, got a lot of information and template lists uh, of the plants that are best for my area, both native plants and climate-appropriate non-native exotic plants. Um, and we basically categorize them um, by uh, what's their best microclimate preference within a rain garden. So are they, do they like the bottom, the terrace, or the top? So uh, the, the bottom plants are the plants that can take periodic inundation of water. They're placed at the bottom of the basin. The terrace plants are um, planted on the bank of the rain garden, a little bit higher up, um, so we can have less water-tolerant plants and slightly more drought-tolerant plants there. And then at the top, we have the least water-tolerant plants and the most drought-tolerant. So at the top, the plant, is, the base of the plant never gets inundated with water, but the roots can access the water. Um, so uh, this helps shift and enlighten people's thinking so they can put right plants in right microclimate. And we also then select along the streets trees and shrubs that have deep roots, not shallow heaving roots that might heave a sidewalk or street curb. Um, in addition, uh, it's great to list other uses of the plants. I really like to emphasize food-bearing plants. So we have planted a lot of food-bearing trees and shrubs along our neighborhood streets irrigated with the street runoff. This way we create these passively freely irrigated green belts of shade that also produce food while generating wildlife habitat. And a key thing there is um, we don't want the, the food that we eat from these plants to have any toxins from the street. So we don't plant leafy greens or tuber roots along the street that get the street runoff. Instead, we just plant woody perennials. And studies at the university have found that no toxins are uptaken into the foods of these woody perennials. So that's, that's safe. Whereas a leafy green, it is uptaking toxins. 
So it's got to be right plant in right place. Now, I want to follow up on, you know, you mentioned the city of Tucson adopting this, these green infrastructure um, you know, regulations after they, they kind of realized a lot of the benefits that you've espoused here. What other communities have you or, or are you working with other communities um, to yeah. develop green infrastructure standards? Um, quite a number. Uh, so I'm continuously uh, teaching and presenting throughout the Southwest, but also uh, internationally. Um, so recently, uh, I've been able to collaborate with um, uh, a nonprofit in Los Angeles, uh, Water or LA Water, um, and uh, other, they're otherwise known as the River Project. And um, they're working with City of Los Angeles transportation officials um, to develop uh, new standards um, for green infrastructure, water harvesting systems along and within city streets, while at the same time helping uh, create uh, guides for people doing so on their individual properties. Uh, now, I've done that same work here in Tucson, not only with the city of Tucson, but also the nonprofit Watershed Management Group, which uh, recently um, came out with a Spanish edition of their guide, which is um, Green Infrastructure for Southwestern Neighborhoods. And you can download that from their website for free in English or Spanish. The Spanish um, version came after I... Uh, did work with the city of uh, La Paz, Mexico, and the city of Ciudad Obregón in uh, Sonora, Mexico, where I went down, gave presentations, did hands-on workshops, and then working with the city of both cities, we uh, created their first um, street-side water harvesting system as the test plot. Um, and both are uh, working phenomenally well, and now they've gone on to do, uh, to do many more. So this is yet another example of what we talked about before, of how key it is to get a good working example in place that people can learn from, evolve from, and be inspired by. Oh, it's absolutely fantastic. Now, let's talk a little about the legality of these systems. Um, because, you know, you'd mentioned gray water harvesting. I'd I live in Colorado now, and while the state has passed a, a statute that m might allow for gray water harvesting, it, the, the dominoes that need to fall before gray water harvesting is legal have, have, not, have not fallen yet. And so I'm just curious about your experience with uh, the, the various legalities of uh, gray water harvesting and some of your other, uh, you know, uh, other uh, rainwater harvesting methods. Yep. Well, let's start with gray water harvesting. So prior to 2001, in the state of Arizona, for all intents and purposes, gray water harvesting was illegal. Now, you could legally do it, but it was a very expensive permitting process, very laborious, and no one had any interest in participating. So people basically completely disregarded anything the state was saying because it was so burdensome. Nonetheless, um, and, and so I just want to clarify, if you did not go through that permitting process and regular testing of the water, it was illegal to harvest gray water. Nonetheless, there was over 100,000 documented people, um, you know, households harvesting gray water in the state of Arizona um, illegally. So uh, 
a study by um, the university, others, um, Val Little, um, the local conservation group was key in all this. Um, they documented this, and they also found that there were no uh, health issues associated with these wildcat systems as long as people were following just you know common sense. And so based on those findings, they generated um, 13 best management practices or um, guidelines and then proposed uh, to the state of uh, Arizona that they change the law um, and instead of um, having burdensome requirements uh, to actually have uh, an easier guidance system that incentivizes this practice that would save the state huge amounts of water um, and uh, promote safe practices. So that's what happened. The state of Arizona legalized the harvest of gray water. And you don't need any permit, there's no inspection, and there's no fee. As long as you follow the 13 common sense guidelines or best management practices. The only time any enforcement comes into play is if you don't follow the, those guidelines and a problem arises and then someone complains. That's when the hammer comes down. Okay. So this has been very successful um, and uh, has led to more um, adoption and use of the gray water harvesting, of using the safe practices. And now it's even rebated. You can get up to $1,000 in the city of Tucson for harvesting gray water. Um, so uh, New Mexico soon followed suit. Uh, California, in a large degree, has West Texas. So it's really been taking off. Um, after uh, Arizona uh, turned things around within its own policies. Now, for rainwater harvesting, the, uh, the primary way I advocate that, the um, planting the rain, harvesting and infiltrating your on-site rainfall in the soil and using the living pumps of plants to primarily access that water, uh, that's legal. As far as I know, that's legal everywhere, including Colorado. Um, in the, sorry, it's legal everywhere in the United States, including Colorado. Uh, when, and I'm not talking about creating dams in creeks and rivers, okay? It's your, you're intercepting that water before it gets to the waterway. Um, and this does not reduce downstream flows. We actually find it increases downstream flows, um, but not the flood flows. It decreases floods because you're infiltrating the water, and then it's a much slower release out of the soil into the water body, as opposed to a spike flood flow running off the surface. So we get more sustained year-round flows downstream without the spike flood flows. Um, now, the, the one thing that uh, um, is illegal um, in terms of harvesting water in some places, like some parts of Colorado, is harvesting rainwater in tanks. And uh, thankfully, um, that is even beginning to shift in Colorado. In, in Arizona, um, you know, New Mexico, California, it's no problem to harvest rainwater in tanks. Uh, Colorado's an exception. And uh, it used to be you just could not harvest water in a tank, rainwater in a tank, period. But that changed with a study done in Colorado, in Douglas County. Um, Bjorn Courtney, a local engineer, and some others, um, they looked at uh, 
how much rain flows off an undeveloped track of land in Douglas County. And they found that um, on average, no more than 3% of the rain falling on that undeveloped parcel of land runs off. And uh, then doing more computer modeling, and they put in some crazy rain events into the model. They said in a, in a, in a huge storm, you would not have more than 15% of the rain flowing off the site. So they then took that to the state legislature and whatnot, and uh, with that scientific data, were able to change the law um, because they proved that the bulk of the rain falling on, a, on an undeveloped parcel of land doesn't run off. However, when you develop, you create hardscape like roofs, paving, more water does run off. But you should have the right to harvest that runoff water you generated. That's runoff water that did not exist pre-development. So um, due to that, you can now legally harvest rainwater in a tank in Colorado uh, as long as you're not connected to um, a municipal sewer system uh, or a water system. So that part, that's a funky little detail in it. But if you're on your own well and you have your own septic or compost toilet system or gray water harvesting system, you can legally harvest rainwater in a tank in Colorado. So that's a great start, um, but I think it needs to go further and we need to legalize the harvest of rainwater and tanks for those within the urban environment as well. Well, Brad, I think we could talk for a heck of a long time. I mean, this we're just kind of scratching the surface, I feel like, but we've already hit uh, 35 minutes. So um, I'd love to have you back sometime and talk a little more about, uh, you know, what you're doing, you know, some more projects you're working on. But uh, before we before we leave, could you please tell folks that would like to find out a little more about you and your projects uh, where they can go to find that out? Absolutely. So um, I would strongly recommend folks check out uh, my uh, books. I've got two books. They're both titled Rainwater Harvesting for Dry Lands and Beyond. Uh, one is volume one, the other is volume two. Um, you can get uh, those books direct from my website or any bookstore. They're available nationally and internationally. Um, um, but my website has got a ton of free info, videos, and um, uh, lots of other great resources. The website is www.harvestingrainwater.com. And uh, another side project I have is uh, promoting the planting of uh, food-bearing native vegetation using water harvesting. Uh, that group's called Desert Harvesters. You can get more information on it at desertharvesters.org. Terrific. Well, Brad, again, thank you so much. Uh, been, it, it's been really interesting to hear about your work. So I really appreciate your time and uh, hope to talk to you soon. I look forward to it as well. And thank you so much for this opportunity. You bet. We'll talk to you soon, Brad. Bye. Well, that was my conversation with Brad Lancaster, a permaculture and rainwater harvesting guru from Tucson, Arizona. I loved his enthusiasm, didn't you? Well, here are a couple takeaways. The first is a theme Brad repeated several times. He said that he finds the rainwater harvesting systems work best when people have a good working example they can see first. 
Think about it. If a rainwater harvesting system was an eyesore and was shoddily constructed so that it didn't work properly, no one would adopt it, no matter what, you know, what the benefits it could uh, devolve upon the property. Brad in- indicated that he was careful when creating his to make clean curb cuts, even though illegal at the time, rather than sledgehammering the curbs. This is a strategy that transcends rainwater harvesting. Any project in which you want public adoption to ensue, you're going to want a great working example of it to showcase to people. Uh, my next takeaway is the Greywater situation. As we discussed during the interview, Greywater reuse has and is still evolving from being prohibited or so highly regulated that no one will use it um, now to the point where it's becoming more accepted. The regulations are loosening. Um, and I'm hoping Regulation 86 here in Colorado that would create the framework for gray water reuse for homes within municipally connected water sewer systems finally gets moving. Uh, so hopefully we see that soon. Um, and my final takeaway is that I'm thankful for you, the listeners, for bringing topics like these to my attention. It was terrific speaking with Brad and learning about what he does with permaculture and rainwater harvesting. So hopefully you enjoyed that too. Well, you can check the show notes out for this session at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 41. Leave a comment on the show notes or email me at david at the water values. You can also tweet at me at DTM1993, and you can tweet at me about the podcast using the hashtag water values. And don't forget to rate and please review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast directories. And don't forget to tell your friends and colleagues about the podcast and to sign up for the Water Values newsletter, which can be done at thewatervalues.com. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning into the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Colorado and Indiana, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. And information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.